Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Good to see you, David. Good to be here. It's everything. You know, my brother and I are teaching our classes in Liberia, and we got an NGO status in Liberia. We need to raise some, raise some money. Like right now, we have a, a house. A couple of years ago, you, you had given some money for it, and we were able to rent a house. Well, that was a one-year lease. And then for the last year, we've been, Youth for Christ let us borrow some space over there. Uh, but they moved out of that place. But we found another house, which is, <coughs> has a nice big open place for classrooms. And then we need somebody to live there because you don't, you always have somebody guard your stuff in your property. So we have um, a place for uh, somebody to live, also a place for for an office. Great, wonderful. They had some atroc- atrocities years back, right? With Yeah, they did. Um, I went my first time in 2005, and uh, at the end of 2004, the Civil War ended. Um, it was like 14-year Civil War, and it really devastated the country. And uh, That was back... Uh, uh, Liberia has an American... Um, it's where uh, freed slaves um, were sent back, and then they basically enslaved the... The natives there, which is the cause of the Civil War, because pretty much the descendants of the American slaves, basically from 1849 to 1979 or 1980, ruled that country. All the positions of power, uh, there were no indigenous people that were in positions of power, you know. And so so that's what caused the Civil War. Uh, But then you have... uh, you know, you have people like Pat Robertson who said that Charles Taylor was a wonderful guy. Well, Pat Robertson was, you know, making a lot of money off of the gold uh, in the country and stuff like that. And was there a a general general butt naked? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I used to. Um, I'd go speak in uh, high schools. I'd talk about General Butt Naked. You know, he fought butt naked. Usually what they do is they'd, you know, sacrifice like a baby or something like that, drink its blood, and then put on their combat boots and then, you know, scare the living crap out of, you know, whoever they attacked. Because they were all naked, right? Yeah, they were all naked when they fought in battle. He put a fear in different people. And, uh, you know, it was very much, it was a tribal war and a war against the, the state. So General Butt Naked... He ended up having a, a conversion experience and is a pastor now. Who, Depending on who you talk to, it's not everybody likes him, right? Because yeah, yeah. he went in and, you know, burnt down villages and killed innocent people. Killed a lot of people, yeah. There's a documentary. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I don't know if I've seen that one. I'll have to look that one up. I read his, he, he wrote a book. I read his book. One of the things that he said in his book I thought was really interesting that pertains to a lot of what we say and do, he made the statement that nobody gets in a position of power to the level of head of state, you know, their president. Nobody gets to that position without demonic help. I don't know. I suppose you could debate that. But he, he, he said, listen, 
everybody's in that position. And he's dealing a lot with uh, some of their, uh, oh, their spirit gods and different things like that. But, but he said um, these people in positions of power, they get there with demonic help. Uh, literally call on help, uh, you know, for this. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, he might be right just in almost any position of power. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, here we have the True Faults Documentary Festival. And years ago, it's been many, several years back, they had the documentary on General Butt Naked. And, of course, what he, he was recruiting like little kids. Yeah. Like 11 years old, little boys. Yeah, and then it and it show them American movies like Rambo and you know all the movies that it show them the movie you know and even when the hero gets killed, well he's alive in the next movie, yeah. and kind of inundating them with this violence, and you know eleven year old kid actually makes a pretty good killer, yeah, because uh, they don't have yeah. the conscience in form, yeah, um, you know, um, we deal with some of that when we're in Liberia. You know, because these 11-year-old kids now are in their 30s. There's a lot of baggage. There's a whole section that is just an area of different soldiers and stuff like that. And, you know, some, some of the ones that fought in the Civil War, the society has turned against them. Oh, you know, it, I mean, just ostracized them to where... Um, I mean, if you if you lost a leg or an arm or something like that, you are begging the rest of your life. And uh, I've even known church people. We come out of a grocery store and they say, oh, no, no, uh, don't, don't give them any money. They, you know, they killed our no. family members or something. Talk about a need for reconciliation. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. In the, in the documentary, you know, they showed the general after his conversion. And I could understand why people would question his conversion, yeah. just his, his attitude, you know, was still kind of, you couldn't tell that it was, there was any kind of remorse on his part. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a good question. People do question it. And the country's very charismatic and you have to be careful who you trust. That's uh, unfortunate. Yeah. I think the key to the resolution I, I want to immediately say the positive side of this. I think the all, all these years, Matt, I'm really good at telling you the bad news. But the good the good news is once we clear the decks, we have God within us, right? We're encountering Christ, we the Holy Spirit. We have a relationship directly. That's what the significance of Christ as mediator, the God himself has come to us. And once we've said that, then we can look around and say, well, wait a minute. The other ways of saying this are what we've gone through tonight. Hegel would say, God is mediated to us in and through the dialectic. Jews would say, God is mediated to us in and through law keeping. I think we can still do James Dunn and still do the new perspective. It doesn't really help us very much. You know, Paul is sometimes saying this Judaizing teacher is a legalist, right? So the problem with new perspective is that sometimes they'll try to take those texts and say Paul's not do saying Jews are legalists. 
Well, he's not saying Jews are legalists. He's saying that false teacher is a legalist. And once we get that, then we don't, we're, we're not quite so desperate to twist certain texts in Romans. But the point is that uh, what our whole discussion tonight, think of all the filters that we have that we can put in the way of this relationship that we can have with God, right? Yeah, you, you didn't finish the thought earlier because you said that the, the curse of the law is what you said, that to imagine that God is mediated, it's an important word, that God is mediated to us through the law, but the whole Christian claim is that God is mediated to us through Jesus Christ. That's it. I mean, that's, a you know, right? And so that's that's like the key point of departure. In other words, that I think that St. Paul believes that if any of us believe that we have access or that, that, that God can be mediated to us in any other way other than through Christ, that's an accursed gospel. Is justification theory the accursed gospel? <laughs> I don't know. That's a that's that's what you that's what you've been saying. You know, um, hmm. I'm hearing crickets. I would it's like a, to. I would like a, that not to be true. Yeah, it's a strong. It's a strong way to put it. But in other words, if we put anything in, if we displace God with a theory, that's all that's really going on with all this, isn't it? Is that instead of instead of Christ being that direct access point, there's no likeness. It, it, that's a that's a sort of a you know, what James done there, it's like, boy, that's kind of a nice word to use in a symbolic system that you were describing, a likeness, you know, but it posits in the middle of all of it, a sort of void or a nothing or a word. What does that mean? Likeness. That just means like a gap. That means it's like this or it's analogous to, or it's kind of, you know, but it doesn't, there's no real content there, right? That is Paul's word, amoyoma, but of course, likeness but of course the argument is well what does the word mean he also uses the word join to or knit together and the question is knit together with what and dunn says right. knit together with a likeness but that's what i'm saying that i just i meant just in the way that dunn is using it you know yeah that's a that's a you know good biblical word that we've um we've retained the form but we've lost the likeness or however however you want to say it what we would always do i i what i hear you say what I think I, I'm hearing you saying is that we would always displace Christ for some other theory, call it justification, you know, the faith in faith, you know, as you've ran down, down with Zizek, that can just keep going. What's that called whenever, you know, it's like faith and faith and faith and faith. <laughs> you know, it's like an infinite yeah. regression, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Christ is a person who's in us and with us and we can talk to him and he can talk to us and he can, he does and it's not a static letter this is again this goes back to the beginning with origin this was his biggest problem with all of it was that he said that the the whole thing that saint paul spent so much time doing you know you can't read romans apart from corinthians and you know the rest of it but that the he just keeps saying over and over that the problem with the jewish orientation to god is that the letter has displaced the spirit the spirit is the spirit of Christ, you know, and that the veil that there's really is a veil over uh, the reading of all of the, you know, what we call the Old Testament apart from Christ, that you just have the letter. You don't have Christ, that Christ is the key that unlocks theology. He's the key that unlocks the father. 
he's the key that unlocks the Old Testament, uh, our understanding of reality. But yeah, that's nice. But what we would normally do is we would insert some sort of theory and add Jesus on or put him in there somewhere in that theory. But actually, he's not the center. The center is some sort of exchange or some sort of, you know, um, economical sort of situation. Or It is the human sickness. I think what you're describing, Matt, is the disease. In other words, we can talk about this in a kind of theoretical sense. What we're describing in the end, we can talk about it philosophically. But when it comes down to the human psyche, and that's what Paul's doing in Romans 7, he's saying, this thing's killing me. In other words, this is a torturous kind of psychic phenomena that we're describing. And, and Matt, you used a phrase that I really like. You said it is actually a departure from reality. And I think that's what we're, in the end, describing here. That's the way I described it. In other words, when we say something is a deception, part of what it means to be deceived in, the, in, a, in a fundamental sense is to be deceived about reality. And I think that's what we're describing. People are deceived about the nature of reality. What reality? Well, beginning with the reality of their own embodiment. In other words, that's, this is not an abstraction that we're talking about. This is an immediate experience. Our most immediate experience, I am claiming, is a deceived experience. Now, maybe I'm going too far here. But in describing human desire... That's the first thing that arises, and Paul is picturing this desire as colonizing his body. This alien force is the way he describes it. He says, it's no longer I that am doing it, but it's sin that dwells within me. This thing's got a grip on me. It's in my body. Well, what he's describing is, is a, a, a departure from reality. This, by the way, is, of course, what Zizek and McConnell are doing. You know, when people come into them and they're sick, mentally sick. The anatomy of the disease that Freud is getting at is right here in Romans 7. That is, that we are pitted against ourselves. That the enemy that, that is our own worst enemy, the one that we, you know, call, that Paul calls the body of death, it's that plaguing thing that he's done it's that thing in himself the negating the obscuring the overriding of reality is what we're talking about you know I, the way that i put it that you know i think in genesis the naked and ashamed would clothe themselves in the knowledge of good and evil the law that's just another way of saying the law but that's inclusive in other words what how do we do identity through human language thought we we created alternative reality and so the deception i'm claiming is directly experienced as a futile desire what is the nature of this desire it is a lost object right it is that thing that uh, this is a, always an exponential desire because the thing that is desired is unobtainable Paul, you know, will talk about, and in the Bible, will talk about a, a desire of God. There is a good desire. But the sinful desire is this thing that becomes overwhelming. The way that I described this, I quoted it in a previous blog. I said that baptism is the cure to pedophilia. In other words, if desire 
is the environment that we in this is very Girardian, by the way. Where do, where does desire in us arise from? What we're saying is desire is that thing that is mediated mediated to us through the environment. So that desire takes on a particular shape. That we're conformed to a particular mediating environment that shapes our desire. That means that there will be characteristic desires in particular situations, right? Those of you who have d done other cultures, you know this, that in, uh, in other cultural places, there is sexual perversion, but the sexual perversion takes on a peculiar shape. Jim knows this in Japan. The sexual perversion there is just, just so bizarre. It's so strangely Japanese. But can't we say the same thing about Catholicism and its production of pedophiles? Can't we say the same thing about evangelicalism and its just continual production of a particular kind of Bill Hybel, you know, kind of uh, pursuit of adulterous affairs? Can't we say the same thing about fundamentalism and the continual production of the Jimmy Swaggerts and the Jim Bakers? What my point is, I'm not trying to condemn these particular people. I'm just saying we have to see that what is true there is true of all of us, that we're shaped by an environment that gives rise to a particular desire, that that's what Paul is describing. What is the cure for this deception? Being joined to Christ will, in fact, give us the, it, here is a true joining. What he's describing in chapter 7 is the object of desire is always missing. You can't obtain, you know, this is, you can't stop desiring when there is no object of desire. I was explaining to Jim Giorgio Agamben's take on this passage, you know, that you shall not desire. Is that an actual command in the Bible? Thou shalt not covet? I was here. It was me, you, and Jim. I didn't realize it, but no. It says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. or whatever. And there may be a whole is. list of things. His donkey. Yeah, yeah, other things. It's not just his wife, but it's don't, thou shalt not cover what thy neighbor has. Is the idea. But Paul quotes, the law had said to him, you shall not covet. This is kind of an obvious thing. The thing that is denied to us is the thing that, of course, it gives rise to. You know, you, in Roman Catholicism, you can't have sex of a particular kind, but underneath the law, there is a kind of transgressive desire. This is Paul's formula. The law always has its transgressive support. Doing a particular form of evil so as to produce a particular form of the good. Shall I sin that grace may abound? In one way or another, I think this describes then this is Paul's definition of sin. To answer that question, yes. That these forms of faith perpetuate, you know, what I'm describing is the predominant forms of Christianity. I think there's a cure within this, but I think unless we understand that we're joined to Christ, and this is the environment creating an alternative desire that, that we're shaped by the grace of God. And so we can't do this otherwise. I don't think we can do this through 
stronger effort. Paul is saying, realize this. I mean, he is saying that in chapter 6. Realize the meaning of your baptism. So I think we can fail to realize it. Maybe we all occasionally experience, have the Romans 7 experience. But we need to understand we're not written over. You know, I think this is the, this was the thing I was doing with circumcision. The Jew pictures being literally marked or written over with the law. But isn't that the case with all of us, that we no longer have direct access to our own bodies? This is Zizek, but I think this is Paul. What Paul is saying, he's not denying the reality of the body. And in fact, this is in Zizek, the real. The biological body is the real. But we don't have access to reality, in a sense. For Lacan and Zizek, there is never a real direct access to the body. But what I would say is that, no, our, actually our bodies are given back to us. They're restored to us in being joined to Christ. And I think that's the significance of being joined to the body of Christ. It's still body language. It's this being incorporated, though, into an alternative body. It does get confusing in Romans 7 and I guess 6 too. When you're reading through, you, you kind of want to parse things out and talk, figure out, okay, what does flesh mean here? What does body mean? What does mind mean? What does spirit mean? <clears throat> but it is helpful to kind of looking at the word body slightly differently and seeing that the body of Christ versus the body of sin and death is really the two ways, right? That's it. It's that's really good. I mean, and that's the way he sums up Romans 7 at the end, who will deliver me from this body of death. And it's not the body itself we're talking about. We're not talking about your physical body as much as it is, it's the body of Christ that delivers you from the body of death. See yourself as a member of his body, not a body full of members that are warring against each other. And this is an atonement theory, right? Yeah. In other words, we've just said, why, why, why the incarnation? Why the death and resurrection of Christ? In other words, we've just explained this. I think in the way that Paul explains it, here is the need because of the manner in which we've defined humanity in its embodiment, then the only way that this alternative embodiment is going to occur is in and through the incarnation. The way I've, I've described this, I don't know if it's exactly right, is that to describe Christ as the first incarnate human being, because we tend toward disincarnateness right? We tend toward the split, toward the getting rid of the body, toward the, you know, I have my body. So that there is the sense that we're not grounded in our own bodies. But the incarnation then is the direction that, that we're all to become incarnate in Christ, to be embodied. It's not through the dialectic of the law, justification theory. It's not through the antinomies, but it is then through this picture of baptism. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. We've described death as there is an orientation, a resistance, a death resistance. We would have life in the law to displace death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, here is the joining of the Father with the Son, so that we too might walk in newness of life. This is an ethic that we're incorporated into. And so the body of sin, the body of death are suspended 
in their punishing effect. I think we are describing an ontological difference. Now, that may seem extreme until we say, is Christ ontologically different than that human being who is given over to mortality and death? I, I think we have to answer yes, and so to be found in Christ is to be found in an alternative, I mean, this is Paul's point, new creation. It, does anybody want to object to their being? And I understand this may sound a little strange. If God is everywhere present and filling all things, then how is it that a Christian is ontologically different than a non-Christian? Yeah, yeah. That, in other words, I think we do believe in an unconditional, that there is a universal salvation. But I also believe we can thwart that. Absolutely, in some way, or at least uh, for, the, for, for a time. The word ontology, I've got no problem with. If you look at it in terms of process, uh, disintegration is very different from new creation. I wonder if the way to describe the difference is one of, if we're not abiding in Christ, we are certainly already dead in sins. Another colorful description of that is, is we're disintegrating. We are, we are divided against ourselves, and we are in an agonistic struggle to remain integrated, but it's futile. It, it's, it's a process of deterioration. It's an un, of unbecoming, I guess. It's a disintegration. Uh, but being in Christ is ontologically different in that it, we're reconstituted. We're a new creation in Christ. We're not a body of members warring against each other within our own psyche. We are fully whole. We are made alive in Christ. We are participating in life with the Spirit as that which replaces um, a false self. Yeah, we're being renewed in our minds. Matt, does the, does the uh, existence, non-existence, does that ring a bell for you at all to think about if Christ fills all things and, you know, all things are being saved, all are being saved, you know, the process of history, there's still a disintegration uh, that some remain in and some die in their sins without ever knowing the reconstitution or the, the constitution of the, their real selves in Christ. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting way to, to raise the question. I guess I would just say that by virtue of our existing and participation, you know, in being itself is already, is always already a, a participation in the life of God. Just by our virtue of being, small b, is always already a participation in big B being to one degree or another. Now, with that being said, obviously evil is not a participation in God. But is that like an ontological obliteration of our subjectivity? I would say no. You know, that we always retain the image of God, even in our fallenness to one degree or another. But the, yeah, that disintegration is a real is a real issue. I've I've experienced it myself, right? I'm sure we all have, you know. Um, and that that the therapeutic sort of healing of the gospel is what integrates us. 
you know, it makes us whole. We have to look at these things, ask it, you know, and sort of with a view towards the future, right? With an eschatological view that all things find their completion and, and their creation in Christ. Going back to Jordan Daniel Wood. All I have is the, the, the promises of the Gospels themselves and of the New Testament that God will be uh, all in all, you know, and I don't pretend to know how that's all going to work out, but that, that does seem to be the promise that's held forth, you know, to us through the through the Lord himself and through the, the apostles. So, and it's the only way that really, for me, makes Christianity coherent in the sense that God is one, God is everywhere present and filling all things. We have disintegrated, you know, ourselves from God through our failure to participate in his being, in his goodness, in his life. But that doesn't mean, at least for me, that that's a permanent state of affairs, you know, that God's love endures forever, God's mercy and patience endures forever. You know, I just think that it's more complicated than sometimes we make it. I mean, Paul and I were talking the other day. It's like, well, what if you were born El Chapo's son? And you were born into that family. And just like, you know, Paul was indoctrinated into a specific sort of modern, enlightened, you know, 20th century Christian fundamentalism and had to work his way out of that through all sorts of toil and repentance and hard work and striving, you know, well... El Chapo's son, El Chapito, they call him, you know, he was born into a crime family. I, I guess it's just, it is unfortunate, isn't it, that some of us are born Tom Brady and some of us are born uh, a character. Always Tom Jones. Brady. Yeah, I'm so jealous <laughs> of Tom Brady. I can't, I can't even have a conversation without uh, bringing up Tom Brady. But in other words, like some of us are born with all sorts of privileges and talents and you know, abilities, et cetera. And others of us are born uh, in terrible circumstances, totally uneducated, oppressed, Palestinian, you know, wh whoever. You know, to imagine that in some way that those Palestinian children are ontologically different than me, I would guess is to mistake the nature of reality. Because the true reality is that Christ is everywhere present and filling all things. Uh, and that we can participate in the life of Christ by his grace you know, to, to one degree or another, to do an identity through different, you know, you can do identity through difference in that way too, right? To say that, um, oh, you know, I'm, I'm ontologically different or call it superior or whatever because of all sorts of different various, you know, reasons. And I just, um, I, I, I would just argue that I'm probably ontologically inferior. <laughs> you know what I mean too? That, even that's kind of dishonest. You know, in other words, I, I do think that... Um, it, maybe it's just a, way, a mistaken way to really think about things that um, I guess I'm more of a maybe a Vedantic on this or whatever, that, um, that actually all of us are one body. We're all connected to one another in this human family throughout all the ages. And that I don't have myself apart from Paul or my wife or Brian or Matt or Jim or David or um, a little kid in, in, in Palestine. You know, and because Christ is everywhere, everywhere present and filling all things. And so when I go and visit a hospice patient, as you know, Brian, I'm actually going to visit Jesus, you know, and whenever those hospice patients receive me, they're receiving Jesus. I think that that's the vision that Christ um, gives to us. And that's the anthropology, I think, that he gives us, that there is one body. I don't think that there's two bodies, you know, although I am tempted oftentimes to 
despair and to think that there there is an antichrist body that has an ontology but that can't be true you know that by definition and an antichrist body uh, you know would lack being it would be dis by definition it would be disintegrated well, but that doesn't stop my hope that love endures all things love is patient you know god in other words you need to substitute all those things for god god is patient god endures all things and so my hope is is that god will relent and wait you know like george mcdonald talks about saint george the divine that god won't suffer the loss of any of his of anything that he's made I, I, I would include, you know, I have patients ask me all the time, what about the animals? You know, do you think God will save the animals? And I say, well, haven't you read the story of Noah and the ark? Of course God was going to save the animals. He's already, he's already promised it. I just bring that up to say that to, to be brought into existence by God's grace, incarnate, you know, creation is incarnation. Why would God bring anything into being knowing that it would ultimately be lost? For any number of reasons, again, if you're if you're a member of a crime family, you don't have the advantage of being, you know, for the most part of being a, a part of forging plowshares. I mean, I guess you could, but chances are you're probably if you're Don Corleone's son, you know, it, it's like you're just going to be involved. He hadn't in got a hold of me. <laughs> he hadn't signed up for any classes. Yeah, and Michael hasn't signed. You know, so these things are, are are enormously complicated. That was all just to sort of inadequately, inadequately. I knew you. I knew you would come through <laughs> if I prodded you a little bit. <laughs> that what you're saying, Matt, helps make sense of some of the other other questions that you've had recently. I've heard, listen, been listening to or some of our rebroadcast or podcast rethinking what we already thought through in the Ephesians class with the uh, re-release podcast, where you asked the question about the dichotomy or dualism between church and world. Mm. Is that sort of resonate? Is that, is that what you're, I mean, is that the same question? Because, I mean, I keep coming back to this good question of what is, what is it in John previously, is uh, John 17, where he's praying for, Christ is praying for the unity of those who have been given to him, but not necessarily for the unity of the world. And he's saying, uh, making that distinction between the world and those who the Father has given him. So from that John class, I think that if you keep reading there in John, in the high priestly prayer, Christ does, in fact, though, go on to, and I mean, you know, of course, there's the whole idea of like, well, what does Jesus mean by the world there? You know, I, I don't, I clearly, God desires all, well, I mean, the scriptures just say that God is the, sa the savior of all human beings, and especially those who believe. So what does he mean by the world? I, I don't think that Jesus is praying for the world per se, and you know, in terms of its systems and institutions and, and and that. But yeah, those those things get really complicated. I mean, you know, there's a lot of um, questions I have there, like you do, you know, about he's praying for those that, you know, whom you've given me and uh, but 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 my hope again is that is that God has given uh, the world to His Son, you know, the cosmos to His Son. Yeah, I'm not trying to limit it. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just yeah. thinking thinking through it uh, together, and I, I think you you also have framed. I mean, it is does get pretty clear when you talk about the difference between good and evil, or the body right. of Christ and the world system of 
oppression and principality. And I think that is the, the line of demarcation between disintegration or non or you know moving towards non-existence. That's Athanasius's words right there, moving towards non-existence and the alternative, the new the new Adam. This is some, this is a constitution. This is a re, this is an integration. This is reintegration. But I don't even want to put the, the the re in front of it. Yeah, I mean, I thought Paul actually nailed it earlier that I actually do think that baptism is the reality you know it is the true way that because what are we talking about well we're talking about theosis we're talking about the unity of god and man in christ and that we participate in that in baptism and that in as much as we don't share in that life yeah it's death you know what i mean and it's evil is it's real and it has all these horrific consequences for god's good world the question, I guess, for me, though, ultimately becomes, that, truly, truly, I, I really believe that we, um, in, uh, that we live in a terrible, obviously, right? Like, we live in a terrible situation that cannot be the fullness of, the, of life in Christ, you know? Um, I can only look at the trajectory of my own life and say, wow, I, I was also, and, and still sometimes do, participate in those um, death-dealing ways. I guess where it gets really complicated is what you said, you know, about, um, you know, the state and the relationship with the church and all these different ways to kind of do identity. But, boy, I hope that my neighbor, my enemy, you know, we're called to love our enemies, right? Uh, why? Because our enemies I, I, are made in the, in the image of Christ. And they are, you know, that. I, I guess and just in some ways, I, I guess I look at this, and you guys can correct me if I'm off here, if I've gone off the reservation, but, you know, Donald Trump, you know, the, Cornell West calls Donald Trump my brother. It's hard for me every time I hear, you know, and he has a lot of critics. He has a lot of critics on the left who, who criticize him for that. And they, they say, well, I don't do the Cornell West thing and say, brother Trump and brother well, Biden. Brother Zizek, too. Yeah, does he? <laughs> I really get it. I get it what he said because I mean I, he it communicates and I, I love it when he says that that um he Trump's a gangster. Yeah, he yeah. Says. <laughs> but he says, but I got some gangster in me. Yeah, <laughs> that was a really good impression. But I got some gangster in me. Oh man, I love watching him on YouTube. <laughs> this may be a parallel. Uh, just a couple things I've read or heard from people that make their living speaking to audiences they've done enough brain research if if they tell a joke that you know good belly gives everyone a good belly laugh it like raises people's iq at least several points before they begin you know their presentation his name just came lipton uh, dr lipton who's uh done a lot of research in genetics and this epigenetics which genes that control genes how the environment allows your genes to not only heal, but to make new brain cells, new tissue, which goes against Darwin, you know, that everything's sort of programmed when you're born. The body is a permeable identity within an environment. I think that's a scientific fact. Yeah. But it's also a theological understanding. Uh, any of you gotten through uh, the, the Beyond Justification or read parts of it? I've read some parts, the early parts of it, before he gets to the 
Sanders and N.T. Wright. He does a wonderful job in there clarifying what the project of N.T. Wright is. At least for me, it was very helpful because I think I think there is a lot of confusion exactly what his project is. Is he really an apocalyptic theologian? Is the new perspective really that helpful? Is the project really over and against justification theory? Or is it justification theory writ large? It's well done. I think it, I think it's more uh, maybe a little more accessible. But... All right. Appreciate you, man. All right. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate what you're doing and your friendship. Okay. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you all. Love you guys. God bless. See you next time. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.